Shalom, everyone. Welcome, welcome, welcome once again on this holy day, this holy Shabbat. I want to give praises to the Most High, Yahuwah, and His Son, Yahusha, for His loving grace, because was not for Him, we may not even have been here today. So I want to praise Him and thank Him for all the love and blessings He has given myself, my family, throughout this week. I'm Boyce Washington, and on the other side of me is the Pastor Richard Washington, and we are the Science of the Covenant. If while this podcast is going on, you want to have your question or comment read on air, please feel free to email us at scienceofthecovenant at gmail.com. Again, that's scienceofthecovenant at gmail.com. If you look at the lower bottom of your screen, you will see the email address there. So it's there throughout the whole podcast. Also, if you're watching on YouTube, on a computer, uh, on your phone or iPad, whatever the case may be, and you're in the chat, you can also put your comments and messages in the chat, and we will try to get to them. As you had know, known, or if you haven't known, the pastor has been doing a very great series on the destiny of disobedience. We are on part 11, and it's been very interesting and rich how he has brought out why the African-Americans, black Americans, uh, Negro people, not just here, but all over the world have been dealing with various curses. He's been bringing it out from scripture. And I would tell you this, if you just coming in now, or if you miss some of the episodes, you have to go back and listen to the other 10. You're going to learn so much from it. So with that, I'm going to turn it over to the pastor. So, Pastor, uh, what are you going to bring us today? All right. Thank you very much, boy. So what we want to do is a kind to build up on the discourse that we had last Shabbat. Now, what we started, what we stated, that there were two basic philosophical ideologies we must consider. So what we have here is we discuss the first ide uh, ideology, which was that of equality. We talked about equality. Now, the equality that we looked at in a, uh, a few ways, now we want to concern ourselves with the second philosophical ideology, which has to do with our methods of getting out from under the oppressor. So when we look about getting out from under oppression of those to whom we are being oppressed by, we will refer to this philosophical ide ideology as the methodological, and we will call the methodological the ideology of the Marshall strategy. Now, when we talk about the Marshall strategy, we are talking about how we can get our forces together to come out from under oppression. We looked at the equality, and in dealing with the equality, uh, we saw that when we are then in the enemy's camp, they may or may not treat us humane. Some will and some won't. But now we are looking at the strategy of how we can use 
our ability to come out from under this particular uh, situation in which we're in. So with that in mind, let us pray. Our loving Father, we thank you for another Shabbat that we can meet with you and to be able to discuss your word. And as we look at the strategy in how to come out from under oppression, that you would be with us, teaching us and giving us the insight and the understanding from your word as to how we can come out from under that which we have been under for so long. Bless him who we speak. Bless the technologists. Bless those who listen. And most of all, bless each one of us who are desirous of following in the way that you have given, which is your covenant, is our prayer in Yeshua's name. And for his dear sake, we do pray. Amen. And amen. Amen. Our first text that we want to turn to is found in the book of Matthew. And in Matthew chapter 24, we want to consider verses 6 and 7. Verses 6 and 7. And it reads, and he says, Ye shall hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that ye be not troubled. For all these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. For nation shall rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. And there shall be famines and pestilence and earthquakes in diverse places. So among the signs that Elohim has given us, his son was saying that you shall hear wars and rumors of wars. In other words, there will be wars, there will be fighting, and we will perhaps at a point be in some of these wars. And the Bible speaks about not only wars and rumors of wars, but he speaks about rumors of wars. Now, a rumor is something that is told, something that is talked about. And so we know that when we deal with war, we're dealing with the times when we're not actually in combat with one another, but we are dealing with talking about wars. Even if there aren't wars, they're still talking about it. And so we, as Elohim's people, have to understand that we'll also be engaged in these wars. So we're going to be looking at what we call the martial, M-A-R-T-I-A-L, the martial strategy. And we can be, and we can view the martial strategy from at least two basic aspects. In other words, when we talk about the martial, we are talking about how we will fight the wars that we are in. And so the two aspects that we'll be looking at it from is a peaceful protest or that of a violent protest. The peaceful protest is what we call the pacification strategy. So we want to first look at the pacification strategy. The pacification strategy involves methods of peace in the sense of not using force of any kind to hurt <laughs> to hurt one's enemy, whether he uses force or not. So in other words, when we deal with our enemies, our enemies may or may not use force, but for us who are oppressed, we may choose the type of strategy uh, that will not harm others in our protests. So when we look at that type of strategy, 
it may be what we consider nonviolent strategies. So in a pacification strategy, one may use a number of strategies to bring about freedom from the oppressor. Some of the strategies of pacification are you sit down and you try to negotiate with those in whom you are being oppressed by. Sometimes you may have marches in which you have signs and you go through the community and down to the government buildings to protest against something that you feel is an injustice. And sometimes you have those who go to school and they learn to educ they educate themselves in political science and understand how the government works and they may go into the legislative halls of Congress to be a Senate, a senator, or someone who works in the government to be able to legislate laws that can get us the type of freedom from the oppression that we are under. Sometimes there's boycotting of certain organizations to be able to get them to listen to what we are going through. Sometimes there's sit-ins and sometimes there's demonstrations. Pacification strategies are largely seeking ways to bring about solutions to problems without any type of violence or harm to an oppressor. While such an approach may be considered noble and peaceful, yet it has its drawbacks. In our day, pacification strategies have been tried to bring about moral solutions to our situation of maltreatment after slavery ended. One of the drawbacks of pacification strategies and philosophy is that in ways it benefits the oppressor more than the oppressed. While the oppressed is treating the oppressor with kindness, understanding, and compassion, the oppressor treats the oppressed with harshness, rudeness, and insensitivity. So often when an oppressor has the upper hand, very seldom do they change their inhumane approach for that of a humane one. One of the things that we must keep in mind is that generally the oppressor who has been able to oppress a people by force and violence will continue to do so. Therefore, the oppressor uses methods of the oppressed to his advantage to keep one oppressed. However, there are some advantages that the oppressed can get from using pacified strategies. There is the moral satisfaction that one can live with oneself knowing that one has done one has not done anything to harm one's fellow man. Moreover, there are many who believe that to be nonviolent to one's oppressor is built upon the Bible concept of what Yeshua said about how we treat our enemies. Now, we want to turn to uh, Matthew chapter 5. And in Matthew chapter 5, we want to uh, look at verses 43 through 44. Matthew chapter 5, 
43 through 44. Now here, the Bible says, in these particular verses, it says in verse 43, it says, Ye have heard that it hath been said, Thou shalt love thy neighbor and hate thine enemy. And verse 44 says, But I say unto you, Love your enemies and bless them that curse you. Do good to them that hate you, and pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you. So when we read these verses, uh, they have a significance of what Elohim expects of us, even with our enemies. Now, even Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. quoted these words in his speeches during the civil rights era of the 60s. This was led this has led many Christians to believe that nonviolence was Yeshua's, which Yeshua taught when he was here upon earth. Even though Dr. King quoted these words from Yeshua, his nonviolence strategy came from Mahatma Gandhi. Gandhi wasn't a believer in Yeshua, even though he spoke well of him. However, what many Christians fail to see is that because Yeshua taught us to love our enemy, that he wasn't opposed to fighting. While many have adopted this view, it is not an entirely biblical, or is it actually what Yeshua, he himself taught. However, for many who have embraced this pacified strategy, which they believe Yeshua taught, it gives them a moral and a legal satisfaction that they are following Yeshua and treating their fellow man as Yah would want them to do. So at this juxtaposition, we want to transition to the next basic aspect of the martial strategy, which concerns itself with force. In this method, even though violent force can be used, we call this method the combative method or the combative strategy. Yes, he taught, uh, Yeshua taught us how to love our enemy, but we want to understand that in loving our enemy, it didn't mean that we couldn't fight. So we want to look at the combative strategy. So the combative strategy involves methods of fighting and weapons of both spiritual and carnal. Such a strategy as this kind may hurt or kill one enemies or the oppressor. Whether his oppressor uses force or not, it was Malcolm X who didn't believe in a nonviolent approach. However, while he didn't believe in it, yet if his oppressor attacked him, his, his philosophy was to use any means necessary. We stated earlier that even though Yeshua taught us to love our enemy, that this didn't necessarily mean that he was against fighting with one's enemy. In order for us to properly understand the combative strategy, 
Yeshua used and why he used it, it will have to do with understanding why he would fight or why he did not fight. Let us understand what he actually says on, on this matter. And in doing so, let us turn to the book of John, the Gospel of John. And we want to look at the 18th chapter, John, the 18th chapter. And in that 18th chapter, we want to consider a number of verses there to deal with this combative strategy of, uh, 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 of fighting that Yeshua alluded to when he was here on earth. Now, in the 18th chapter, we want to consider verses 33 to 36. 33 to 36. And here it starts with verse 33, and it says, Then Pilate entered into the judgment hall again, and he called Yeshua, and he said unto him, Art thou the king of the Jews? Yeshua answered him, Sayest thou this thing of thyself, or did others tell it thee of me? And Pilate answered, Am I a Jew, thine own nation? And the chief priests have delivered thee unto me. What hast thou done? Yeshua answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then would my servants fight, that I should not be delivered to the Jews. But now is my kingdom not from hence. So now what we want to pay particular attention to is verse 36. Let us read and digest this verse. Now the Bible says that Yeshua said in verse 36, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then would my servants fight that I should not be delivered to the Jews, but now is my kingdom not from hence. Now, there are a few factors we want to consider in Yeshua's reply to Pilate's question to him. The first factor we want to consider is the kingdom which he is talking about when he says, my kingdom is not of this world. So what kingdom is he referring to when he says, my kingdom? Well, in order to determine what kingdom he was referring to, let us first understand what a kingdom is. So let us break down what a kingdom is. Now, in order to have a kingdom, there must be at least two basic components. The first component of a kingdom is a kingdom has to have a king. It has to have a king. That's number one. And the second component is to have an empire. So you have to have a king and an empire. So when we have both the king and an empire, we have a kingdom. So when Yeshua said, my kingdom was not of this world, then logically, we would ask then if it is, if it is not of this world, then where is it? So Yeshua says they would fight if his kingdom was of this world. 
But he says his kingdom is not of this world. So where is his kingdom? And the other question we must ask in conjunction with, with it is, what makes up a kingdom in the sense of whether it is a place or a people or both? We know that a kingdom has to have a king for the mere fact that Yeshua referred to his kingdom as my kingdom is indicative of the fact that he is a king. So if he is a king, where is his kingdom? Where is his empire? Now, when we deal with his empire or kingdom, where is it? If his kingdom is not of this world, then where is it? Certainly, it must be in the third heaven where his father is. And if that is so, then his father's kingdom and his kingdom are one and the same. Because you notice in, in, in uh, another text that I think I, I included in, in the list of my text, but we want to turn there because I think it sheds light as I talk that this text came to mind. Okay, we want to turn to uh, the Gospel of John, same book that we're already in, and we want to look at uh, uh, verse uh, uh, chapter 14. And we want to look at a few verses there in, in, uh, in that chapter. Now, the Bible says here uh, in John 14, it says in verse 3, he said, well, we'll start at verse 1 first. He said, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in Elohim, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there ye may be also. And whether I go, ye know not, and the way ye know. And Thomas said unto him, Yah... We know not whether thou goest, and how can we know the way? And Yeshua said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. So what he is pointing out is that the place that he had gone to prepare for is in the house of his father. He said, in my father's house. Now, when he talk about his father's house, he is not only just talking about his father's house. He's talking about his father's kingdom, his father's kingdom. So if his father, if his father has a kingdom and he's a part of that kingdom, his father is the king and he is the prince. But to us, Yeshua is our king. So if he and his father shares the same kingdom in heaven, does this mean that both the place and the subjects of their kingdom is what compasses it, is what composes his kingdom. So then, when we look at a kingdom, we have to look at, number one, we have to look at the king, and then we have to look at his empire, the land in which he's in, which is in the heavenly uh, uh, land. And then, when we look at the subjects of his kingdom, those are the individuals that makes up the kingdom then this would mean that Yeshua's kingdom is located in the holy city 
in, in heaven, and his subjects are his angelic hosts which serve him. So if we are talking about the heavenly kingdom, which is distinct and different from the earthly kingdom, we ask the question, what distinguishes the heavenly kingdom from the earthly king kingdoms? We know this. We know that if Yeshua said that his kingdom is not of this world, then the only other world he could be referring to would be the one in heaven with his father. No doubt his kingdom, of which he was speaking of, is the one which he mentions when he says he was teaching us on how to pray. Now, we want to turn to that uh, Matthew chapter 6, verse 10, when he was teaching us how to pray. There's a text that also demonstrates about his kingdom as well. So we look at chapter 6 of the book of Matthew, and we want to look at the 10th verse, Matthew 6.10 says, it says, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. Okay? So, thy kingdom come, thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. From this statement, we can discern two kingdoms which he is referring to by the way he refers to to his father's will. He says, thy kingdom come, thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. So what are you saying here? He has a kingdom in, in heaven and a, there's a kingdom on earth. And he's saying that his will is to be done in heaven as well as on earth. Okay. So when we consider or when he says, thy will be done on earth, in earth as it is in heaven, if the Father's will is to be done in earth as it is to be done in heaven, then heaven has a kingdom and earth has a kingdom. And the desire is that earth kingdom would be governed by the will of the Father as it governs the heavenly kingdom. Now, the kingdom of which Yeshua is promoting, which is not of this world, is not only a place where Yeshua and his father resides, but it is made up of subjects of his kingdom. Who are the subjects of his heavenly kingdom? According to the book of Revelation, the heavenly kingdom's subjects are the angelic hosts, the elders, and the beasts of whom we refer to as the living uh, creatures. Now, let us turn to Revelation, because we're looking at the subjects of his kingdom, and we turn to Revelation chapter 5. And in Revelation chapter 5, notice what it says here in uh, verse number uh, 11, Revelation chapter 5, verse 11. We're talking about his, his, the subjects of his kingdom. Now, in verse 11 of the fifth chapter of Revelation says, And I beheld and I heard the voice of many angels round about the throne and the beasts and the elders. And the number of them was 10,000 
times 10,000 and thousands of thousands. But what I want you to notice here, he said he heard the voice of what? Many angels, okay? Number one, that, that, those, those angels are part of his kingdom. And then he goes on to say that they were around the throne, and then he says that there were beasts, okay? There were beasts, and those beasts, I believe they are spoken of in the book of Revelation, uh, when, 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 he, when he talks about the various beasts that were around, around his throne, in Revelation 4, 4, it says, And around the throne were four and twenty seats, and upon the seats I saw four and twenty elders clothed in white raiment, and they had on their heads crowns. Okay? Now, so, so it's saying that there were twenty and four elders, so the elders are a part of that particular uh, scenario. And so when we look at that, we can see who they are. And then when we look at Revelation 4, 6, it says, and before the throne, there were a sea of glass unto, like unto crystal. There was, a, there was a sea of glass like unto crystal. And in the midst of the throne, and around about the throne were four beasts full of eyes and behind. And the first beast was like a lion, and the second beast like a calf, and the third beast had a face of a man, and the fourth beast was like a flying eagle. So when we go back to Revelation chapter, 11, uh, chapter 5, verse 11, all of those beasts, they are part of his kingdom. Okay? So we got the angelic host, we got the 24 elders, and we got the four living creatures. Now, let us turn, turn to the book of Ezekiel. And in Ezekiel, we want to look at chapter 1. And in chapter 1, we want to uh, consider verse 5. It's talking about the four living creatures. And the Bible says here, also, out of the midst thereof came the likeness of four living creatures, and this was their appearance. They had the likeness of a man, and everyone had four faces, and everyone had four wings, and their feet were straight feet, and the sole of their feet was like the sole of a calf's feet, and they sparkle like the color of a burning uh, of burnished brass and they had the hands of a man under their wings on their four sides and they four had their faces like the, and they four had their faces and their wings their wings were joined one to another and they turned not when they went and they went everyone straight forward so now, when we look at these four living creatures in the book of Revelation, it somehow ties in with Ezekiel. But the point that we are trying to emphasize is that a part of his kingdom was the angelic host, the 20 and four elders, and the four living creatures. So we must not only notice the place and the subjects of the heavenly kingdom, but also how the heavenly kingdom is governed. When Yeshua said, thy will be done, what will was he talking about? When Yeshua said, thy will be done in earth as it was in heaven, 
one thing that is for sure is that Yah intended for both heaven and earth to abide by his will. If his will is that both heaven and earth abide by it, then what is his will? I would think that the Father's will is his desire. His desire is found in his covenant, which contains his laws, commandments, judgments, and statutes, which he gave to Moses upon Mount Sinai. So let's look at that. Let's look at Exodus. Let's go to Exodus chapter 19. And in Exodus chapter 19, we want to look at verses 3 to 6. Exodus chapter 19, 3 to 6. Now here it says in the 19th chapter of Exodus, and we want to consider verses 3 to 6. Now the Bible says here, starting with verse 3, And Moses went up unto Elohim, and Yahuwah called unto him out of the mountain, saying, Thus shalt thou say to the house of Jacob, and tell the children of Israel, Ye have seen what I did unto the Egyptians, and how I bear you on eagles' wings, and brought you unto myself. Now therefore, if ye will obey my voice indeed, and keep my covenant, then ye shall be a peculiar treasure unto me above all people, for all the earth is mine, and ye shall be unto me a kingdom of priests, and an holy nation, these are the words which thou shalt speak unto the children of Israel. So in other words, he's saying, he gave them a covenant on Sinai, and he declared that they would be a part of his kingdom on earth. So you got a kingdom in heaven, but you also have a, he has a kingdom on earth. Now let us turn to Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy chapter 5, and we want to look at verses 1 to 5. Deuteronomy chapter 5, 1 to 5, and the Bible says, and Moses, called, and Moses called Israel and said unto them, Hear, O Israel, the statutes and judgments which I speak unto, which I speak in your ears this day, that ye may learn them and keep and do them. Yahuwah, our Elohim, made a covenant with us in Horeb, Yahuwah made not this covenant with our fathers, but with us, even us who are all of us here alive this day. Yahuwah talked with you face to face in the mount out of the midst of the fire. I stood between Yahuwah and you at that time to show you the word of Yahuwah, for he, for ye were afraid by reason of the fire, and went up, and went not up into the mount. So Yahuwah had made a covenant with his people back at Sinai. So he wanted them to be a kingdom of priests, and at the same time, they were to be governed by his covenant. Okay, so we're trying to look at his kingdom, okay? So with this in mind, what we want to do is to see the relationship between uh, the Gospel of John, chapter 18, 
And also, we want to look at the Gospel of John, chapter 3 and verse 3. Okay, now, we know in, 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 18, in the 18th chapter of the book of John, in verse 36, it says, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then would my servants fight that I should not be delivered to the Jews, but now is my kingdom not from hence, okay? So he talks about his kingdom here, okay? Now we want to turn to the gospel of John, the third chapter in verse 3, and he's talking to Nicodemus here. Yeshua answered, and he said unto Nicodemus, or unto him, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of Elohim. So he's telling Nicodemus about the kingdom that he's trying to urge in. He's telling about the kingdom. And he tells Nicodemus that uh, except you are born again, you cannot see the kingdom of Elohim. Okay. Now, Yeshua when he talks about seeing the kingdom, he is not literally talking about being able to see it with your eye. Because the word that he used is the Greek word in this testament. It is not talking about the sin with the eye, but he uses the word adon, E-I-D-O-N. That's the Greek adon. And adon means to understand. Just like somebody can be explaining something to you and you say, oh, I see. That's the town of sin he's talking about, uh, understanding of what he was saying. So Yeshua is, <clears throat> so so John, uh, in, in, in John 3.3, 3, he is talking about Nicodemus being born again to be able to understand what the kingdom is about. So Yeshua is understood to be speaking about the kingdom of heaven, which is also referred to by Mark and John as the kingdom of Yah, respectively. Now, when we turn to the book of Mark, okay, let us turn to the book of Mark, and we want to uh, look in Mark chapter 1. And in chapter 1, we want to look at verse number 14. Now, here's what Mark says. He's speaking uh, in verse 14, and he says, Now after that, John was put in, in prison, and Yeshua came unto Galilee preaching the gospel of the kingdom of Elohim. Now notice, Mark says that he was preaching the gospel of the kingdom of Elohim. Okay. He was preaching the gospel of the kingdom of Elohim. Now, but when we read in John 3, 3, when he was talking to, uh, when, when Yeshua was talking to Nicodemus, he said, uh, in, in the third chapter in verse 3, notice he says that ye cannot see the kingdom of Elohim, okay? So, John said, uh, so both of these are saying the kingdom of Elohim, okay? Now, 
when you look at the kingdom of Elohim and also the uh, uh, in, 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 our, in our verse 18:36 in the, in the book of John, he says, uh, in verse 36, he said, "My kingdom, okay, he talks about his kingdom. And when he says, my kingdom is not of this world, he said, if my kingdom were of this world, then my servants would fight. Okay, so here we find that in some passages of scriptures, it, it says the kingdom of heaven, and in some passages of scriptures, it says the kingdom of Elohim. So the kingdom of Elohim and the kingdom of this, uh, the kingdom of Elohim and the kingdom of heaven, they are one and the same. Now, the reason why some Bible writers chose to put the kingdom of heaven rather than the king of Elohim is because they felt that the name Elohim was so sacred that they didn't want to use that name, so they put heaven in its place. Okay? So when we look at Elohim's prayer, when he says, thy kingdom, thy will be done in heaven as well as in earth, he's talking about the kingdom of earth and the kingdom of heaven. But one of the things that we want to notice is that the kingdom on earth may be a part of the kingdom in heaven, okay? Now, with our understanding of the kingdom of Yah being an empire with subjects under a kingdom or a subjects which are under the king and the prince, the father being the king and Yeshua being the prince, we want to notice what Yeshua says about fighting as far as dealing with pacification. We notice that after Yeshua makes known to us the kingdom, that he says something that we should, pay a, we should notice. We notice that after Yeshua makes known that his kingdom is not of this world, he goes on to say, if my kingdom were of this world, then would my servants fight? So in other words, he's not putting aside fighting just because we love our enemy. But he said, if my, king, if my kingdom were of this world, then my, we would fight. That I should not be delivered to the Jews, but now is my kingdom not from hence. So what we are understanding is not that Jesus and his disciples were acting upon the principles of Yeshua being a pacifist, but rather upon what purpose they would be fighting for. Yeshua is laying it out plainly that the reason for him not fighting was not that was that it was not for his kingdom. So he is telling Pilate the reason why my disciples don't fight because it is not for the kingdom. Now that we can see that the reason why Yeshua did not engage in fighting while he on earth was not because he was a pacifist or believed in nonviolence, but because the purpose for which he would fight 
was not in place. We stated earlier that Yeshua's kingdom consisted of both a king and an empire. Moreover, we emphasize that the empire was composed of both a place and the subjects of his empire. Furthermore, we pointed out that Yah wanted his will to be done in earth as it was in heaven. We briefly stated that Yah's will is contained in his law, commandments, judgments, and statutes, which are found in the covenant that he gave to Moses upon Mount Sinai. Now, if what we are to do upon earth is to be governed by what is done in heaven, then it means that when we look at heaven's kingdom and earthly kingdom, that there should be some similarity in the government of heaven as the government on earth. So now, if what we are to do upon earth is to be governed by what is to be done in the heavenly kingdom, then wouldn't it be feasible to embrace his covenant? Why is it necessary to embrace his covenant? His covenant tells us how he governs the subjects of his kingdom. A kingdom without a just rule would end up in an anarchy. It will be confusion without a government. A government has to have some type of laws to govern it. It is the covenant which governs the subjects in heaven. Therefore, this would mean that if Yah's kingdom is to be extended to earth, it would mean that his covenant must also be extended to his subjects on this earth. Can we accurately talk about Yah's kingdom without speaking about his covenant which governs it? To be a part of a kingdom, we must abide by its government. When Yeshua said to Nicodemus, he cannot see the kingdom of Yah, as we pointed out, this word see comes from the word adon, which means to understand in the sense of uh, to know or to be acquainted with. What Yeshua was saying to Nicodemus was that he could not understand the kingdom of Yah if he was not born again. Then he could have the understanding. A part of the understanding of Yah's kingdom is to understand what governs it. Once we understand what it is that governs his kingdom, it can also we can also see how his kingdom can be extended to the subjects on earth. We who accept his covenant here on earth become a part of his heavenly kingdom. Originally, when Yah created this world, Adam and Eve were to have a kingdom on this earth as it was in heaven. In other words, Eden was a, going to be a place that reflected the kingdom of Elohim in heaven. That's what he intended this earth to be. From Eden down to today, Yah's servants, the prophets and preachers and teachers, have been given the task to help bring back his people to his covenant, both by teaching and proclaiming the Torah which is the gospel that is preached. Yeshua said that he and his servants would fight if it were for his kingdom. 
Only when Yah's people who are scattered abroad upon the earth and are taught and obey the covenant will they be put in a place to fight for the kingdom. How can we fight for the kingdom here and we don't even know what, a, what his covenant is? He said, we will fight if you are fighting for the covenant. But he told Pilate, we can't fight here. Why? <laughs> because his covenant is not understood. He said, if they were fighting for my kingdom, which is governed by the covenant, he said, we would fight. <laughs> so once we embrace his covenant, then not only are we positioning ourselves to fight, but for Yah to fight for us as well. He did it for ancient Israel, and he'll do it for us. When we comprehend more fully Yah's words concerning his kingdom, not being of this world, it extends to the govern, governing principles found in his covenant. The principles of his kingdom would which governs both his subjects in heaven as well as upon earth. The principles aren't embraced by this world's kingdom. See, this world and all of his kingdom, it does not embrace the kingdom's principles of heaven, which is a covenant. It, if, if, if Yeshua says... My kingdom is not of this world, then would my servants fight? But now is my kingdom not from hence. Only until his people become united in covenant, keeping his covenant, can we rightfully fight with Yeshua for the kingdom. So we'll stop there. All righty. Uh, so, um, so you were saying in the beginning that generally an oppressor will continue to do what they can to keep a specific people oppressed. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's interesting because we still see that till this to this day with uh, the black people all over the world, we are still continually mm -hmm. oppressed in certain manners. And I think they still have the mindset, it's just in a sophisticated way, mm -hmm. how you had the house Negro and the field Negroes. And to me, the house Negroes now are a lot of your celebrities your ball players, whatever sport may be. And they lean on these guys to talk to the rest of the people of color, which I say, you know, is a modern day field Negroes to try to get them to do what they want. Also, I want to put in politicians, you know, politicians of color. Mm -hmm. And in this manner, it's still keeping us oppressed. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we see how, as many of us are starting to wake up, mm -hmm. that they, you start to see in plain sight of them doing things to try to keep that oppression there. Mm 
mm-hmm. and everything with it, whether they try to strip things away from a particular person. And sometimes I say outright kill, mm-hmm. you know, and then blame it on, oh, they had a heart condition or whatever the case may be. When we know, like, come on, you know, they took these people out. Just case mm-hmm. in point, I feel the, uh, the former president of Tanzania who was against the COVID vaccine and everything. And next thing you know, he was dead. Mm-hmm. And it, well, I don't think it was just no coincidence, but it's just interesting that they are doing whatever to keep us oppressed. But with Yah at the helm of everything and he's seeing everything as he start waking up his people, it's not much you can, it's basically, in my opinion, these people to me are trying to fight the most high. Oh yeah, ultimate, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, also like in days of old in scripture, we know that Israel went to war with different nations and whatnot. And does Yah generally tell the children of Israel when they are to go to war and when they are to not? Mm-hmm. Yeah, he did that in in the uh, in the uh, oh. In the old covenant, he mm-hmm. he told them when to when to fight, uh, and when they out to go out to battle, because you must remember that back then it was a theocracy. A theocracy is where all of Elohim's people are together at one time, uh-huh. and he he is the king over them, and he was able to direct through Moses and Joshua them exactly when to go to battle, not to go to battle. And what was happening in the battle, if anything went wrong, mm-hmm. and they and they would know uh, exactly when to fight. Yeah, he did that. So I just wonder, like in this day and age, is is has Yah hasn't really put on our heart to physically fight just yet. Um, yeah. Mm-hmm. Because uh, just as he has said that we are to love our enemies. And I'm wondering, like, right, right now, with everything we're going through, is he saying, okay, love your enemies first and foremost. Don't worry about destroying your enemy. Love them. Let me see your heart first. I'm going to deal with the rest later. Yeah, that's, that's one of the part of it. But what I was trying to show in my discourse was primarily is that mm-hmm. he's trying to get us to come back to the covenant. And then once we come to the covenant, then... Uh, when we start warring, it won't be just for uh, to war against an enemy, mm-hmm. but it would be because you're fighting now for a cause, which is the kingdom. See, people may go over to uh, the Ukraine and, uh, you know, they may fight in a, in, in a wars by going over there, uh, you know, where the, where the Soviet is fighting over there. Uh-huh. But see, those type of battles are um, that that's for man's battles. That's not Elohim's battles. And see, World War One and World War Two, they were they were not, you know, our people going to war for that. Yeah, they were not fighting for the kingdom. They were fighting for earthly kingdoms. Uh-huh. And that's the, that's not what he was about. What he's trying to teach us is a covenant, you know. And so. If he can pull us together and we have to fight on this earth, just like ancient Israel, mm-hmm. then what he's going to do, he's going to tell us when to go to war and how to war. Mm. And, and, and when that is in place, 
he's not only going to tell us to go to war, but he's going to intervene into the war with us. Just like he intervened with Moses and Joshua and the men of old, he's going to do the same thing for us if we are fighting for the covenant. But if we are not rightly fighting for the covenant, then he's just like he told Pilate. He said, how can, how can we fight? We'll be fighting for the wrong thing. Yeah. And so once that covenant is put in place, then if we stay close to him, he's going to say, uh, you know, y'all pull together and this is the time you fight. And he'll not only show us when to fight, but he'll also let us know uh, uh, that he is on the same page with us because when we go to war, he's going to go to war with us. This is why when Moses said, you know, to Elohim, he said, if we go to the enemy, he said, we want your presence to go with us. And only what we can get his presence to go with us is that we must be following the covenant of the kingdom, the kingdom to have a covenant. Because yeah. if we're not fighting for the covenant, then Elohim is probably looking at us and saying, why should I fight for you? You're not keeping the covenant. Your enemy not keeping it either. So how am I going to fight for you? Yeah. But when we start keeping the covenant, then he's saying, all right, now you got my back. I got your back. And when we go to war, not only will you fight, but I'll be fighting in there with you. But he'll let us know the time and the date in which we need to do that. And we have to follow him because uh, at this time, we're trying to gather the lost children of Israel. And he, at least he hadn't revealed it to me when we are to fight, uh -huh. if we are to fight on this earth, on this side. But he'll let us know all of that if we follow his covenant closely and walk according to the way he wants us to walk. Now, the, uh, the other question I had, too, was uh, you mentioned about uh, the kingdom of priests. Uh, was Yah wanting Israel to be a kingdom of priests? Mm -hmm. All 12 tribes, mm -hmm. not just Levi, but all 12 tribes, he wanted to be the kingdom of priests. Right. Remember, he said, uh, he said, I would that, uh, well, I know he said of the prophets, he said, I would that all my people were prophets, but... Uh, he wanted he wanted a, a nation of priests. Uh -huh. This is why when he died, I can point this out in the book of Revelation. It's like when he died on the cross, one of the uh, things that he wanted to establish upon us in these last days is a priesthood. Okay. Okay. okay now, if you turn the book of Revelation chapter one, and 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 we look at verses verses five and six, notice what it says. It said, and Yeshua, the Messiah, who is faithful, who is a faithful witness, and the first begotten of the dead, and the prince of the kings of the earth, unto him that loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood. Now, notice it says, uh, Yeshua, he was what? He said he was the prince of the kings. Uh -huh. Now, why was he the prince of the kings? Simply because he was, he was, he was the son of Elohim. His father is the king. He is the prince. So he's the prince of all of the kings upon this earth. Okay. He's the prince. Okay. okay now, uh, but when it comes to us, he's not a prince to us. He's a king to us. Mm. But to his father, he's the prince. Mm. Okay. But okay. to us, he's a king. And he says he was the first begotten of the dead. Okay. But. Before he died, the Bible says, unto him that loved us, the latter part of verse 5 of, of Revelation 1, it says, unto him that loved us and washed us from our sins, and is what? His own oh. blood. And then notice what verse 6 says. 
and has made us kings and priests unto Elohim, his father, and unto him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. So he said he made us what? Kings and priests. So when he died on the cross, he made he made all of his people kings and priests, priestess and princess. That's what he did when he died. That's what his blood. Now, how could how could he who had not come from the Levitical priesthood do that? Because the Bible says he took on the order of Melchizedek that is spoken about in the book of Hebrews. And when you speak about Melchizedek, he was both a king and a priest. But when you look at Aaron's line from the uh, Levites, they could only be priests. They could not be kings. Uh. But when he died, he made us both kings and priests. And in doing so, he's going to make a nation of priests. That's what he wants us to be. In these last days, we ought to be nation of priests. Wow. Wow. And uh, one last question before we go on. Um, I was watching a video of a young lady, she was, and she was talking about our plight in the United States, how we've been treated and everything. And she was saying that first thing we need to do is repentance, that uh, all of us descendants of slaves need to ask for repentance. Now, I, I do believe we, yeah, we do need to repent, but she left out about the covenant. So if we repent, is repentance leads to the covenant all the time or, um, yeah, I guess, you know, does, does it, will, will repentance lead to the, somehow lead to the covenant? Uh, in some in some ways it will, in some ways it won't. Now, we have to consider that a lot of people who speak about repentance, mm -hmm. they're just talking about, you know, you did something wrong, and when you did something wrong, you got to get it right, which yeah. is good. But you got to understand that everybody talking about repentance, they don't have the covenant on their mind. True, yeah. You know, they might not even have no 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 conception of what what the covenant is. Some may have an understanding of it. Now, if you have an understanding of it and you repent, then what are you saying? You're saying, well, Elohim, I broke your covenant, so I'm coming back to your covenant. What is your, what, what, what did you break? Well, I broke maybe the Ten Commandments, you know. Now, where are the commandments found? They're found in his covenant. Mm -hmm. He got statutes, laws, and stuff within his covenant. All of that's in his covenant. So when we break his laws and stuff and all of that, we are breaking his covenant as well because it's all in his covenant. So when a person says repent, we have to understand where what are they talking about? What are they you repenting be... to or repenting for? Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. And so uh, <clears throat> when you lay down what you're repenting for, it can lead you to, to the covenant in the sense that when you recognize what you have been doing that was not in, in harmony with his wishes, then you ask forgiveness and the blood of Yeshua covers that sin. And then you ask for power to be able to keep the things and do the things that was breaking the covenant. So you are coming back to the covenant. Mm -hmm. Now, if you understand the covenant, then you will try to obey everything that is found in the covenant through his grace. Now, if you don't know about the covenant, then you are generally just speaking in general that if I uh, talk to a person the wrong way, Lord, forgive me, you know, for talking to him the wrong way. If I have uh, stole something, uh, then I may have to go ahead and re restore what I stole from somebody. But as 
Elohim for uh, forgiveness for what I what I've stolen, but I but give me the strength to give back what I've stolen and not to steal anymore. Mm-hmm. That may be as far as they see, just the Ten Commandments. That's all they see, and so uh, that's what they may be repenting for. But it could lead to the covenant, and sometimes it may not lead to the covenant. Mm. Yeah, and, and you know, to me, that's one point that I have not heard many people talk about is the covenant. Everybody talk about everything else around it, what we going through, what we going through, but no one, honestly, I feel besides us, have really talked about us returning to the covenant. And to me, that is a vital point of solving all our issues. It's not just about repentance. That's a part of it. But we have to return to the covenant. And I I truly believe that once we do that, things will start to change amongst our people and everything. Yeah, that's true. Uh, But another thing we have to keep in mind is that we all have a piece of the puzzle, you know. Uh, Elohim may have given somebody somebody, uh, the puzzle of repentance. Another person... The uh, the puzzle of covenant, another person, the covenant of the kingdom, another person, the covenant of uh, foresight to see when we should do certain things. But we, but it's up to us as a people to put all these pieces together to get the whole. Mm. See, because we we're not all. See, one of the things that we are not all impressed with the same things. True. Because we we have been brought up differently. Some people may have been brought up in a Catholic church, some in a Baptist church, some in a Presbyterian church, some in a Methodist church. You know, you we we, and then there are some people, they may not have been churched at all. Mm. They just come and all of a sudden they found the Bible and they started reading it. So we all come from different backgrounds, and so we we may all come with a point of view that mm. if we put the whole view together, we can say, hey, now I can see a fuller picture than that which I've seen just on my platform, but I'm taking my platform and add it with your platform, and you taking your platform and add it with mine, and pretty soon we're going to stand on the stage as actors in the full drama displaying the entire plan of salvation. Mm. Wow, that's powerful. That is powerful. And uh, with that, we go on to our next segment. Mm-hmm. Up next is Let's Talk About That. So today, and let's talk about it. I want to talk about it again even more. <laughs> we just talked a little bit about it. Well, talked extensively about it, the covenant. And I want to talk about, is the covenant just for Israel? Is it just for Israel and no one else? And I want to get some clarification from this verse and from the pastor. So if you have your Bibles with me, if you can turn with me in Deuteronomy, the 29th chapter, verses, and we're going to look at verses 12 through 15. Again, that's Deuteronomy, the 29th chapter, verses 12, 15, 12 through 15. And it reads, That thou shouldest enter into a covenant with Yahuwah thy Elohim and to his oath which Yahuwah thy Elohim maketh with thee this day, that he may establish thee today for a people unto himself, and that he may be unto thee and Elohim, as he hath said unto thee, and as he hath sworn unto thy fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and to Jacob. Neither with you only do I make this covenant and this oath, 
But with him that standeth here with us this day before Yahuwah, our Elohim, and also with him that is not here with us to this day. So, Pastor, I want to ask, is this basically saying that the covenant is not just for Israel, that it's for other people and other nations also? Yeah, uh, he kind of alludes to that in verses 14 and 15 Mm -hmm. when he says, uh, neither with you only Mm -hmm. do I make this covenant and this oath, but with him that standeth here with us this day before Yahuwah, our Elohim, and also, he says, Mm -hmm. with him that is not here with us this day. Now, certainly we're not there with him this day mm-hmm. and certainly uh, back in his day when they was coming out of Egypt if they put blood on the doorpost as the Israelites did they were protected from the death angel too mm. so so his his covenant uh, well what he gave to his people and his people were to give it to the world mm-hmm. because he was saying that if his people would abide by his covenant then the the nations would look at his people and say this is a wise and understanding people, because mm. they would see how you conduct your affairs according to the covenant. So the covenant was not just for, for for his people, but his people was to give the covenant to other nations that they can abide by it too. But at the same time, that well, we are giving, we're trying to get the lost sheep of Israel back together. Then we don't neglect other people who want to be a part of the covenant, like Abraham. I think he had about. What was that? Three hundred and eighteen or three hundred sixteen servants. Mm-hmm. Now all of those servants didn't come from the Hebrews. Mm-hmm. He okay. picked the he picked a lot of those servants up on as he traveled around. They joined him, so he was teaching the covenant, and a lot of people respected Abraham because he was carrying out the covenant, and they respected him for that. Mm-hmm. Some of them accepted the covenant. Some of them may not have. But the point is, is that the nation of Israel was set upon the earth to teach the covenant to the other nations. And when the other nation get it and then they would embrace it, they would become a part of the kingdom too. But the fact is, is that in many instances, the world may not want his covenant, even though we try to teach it to them. Uh-huh. But if they would embrace it, then they would become a part of the covenant too, because Elohim's whole purpose was, is to save not only his people, but to save the world. And in saving the world, Anybody in the world that would appear to his covenant is saying to Elohim that if you appear to my covenant here, then when you get to my heavenly kingdom, you'll go by the same covenant in my heavenly kingdom. But if you reject it here, you'll reject it there. So you could not be a part of my kingdom. So well, let me ask this too then. Uh, like when I, when I hear other uh, Hebrews speak and talk, it's like their message is catered more towards trying to reach Israel specifically. Should right now we be just trying to reach Israel specifically in our messages, or should our message be catered to trying to reach everyone to return to the covenant? Well, I look at it this way. Uh, Anything you do uh, with the covenant, you want to be specific. Mm -hmm. If a person doesn't know the covenant and they're part of the covenant, I want to be specific in helping them to understand the covenant. And if a person is a part of the covenant keepers, then I want to be specific that if you are part of the covenant keeping community, then we need to uh, make sure that we are doing 
not just talking the covenant, but we are doing the covenant. So I would say for both groups, we can be specific to both groups. Uh-huh. It, it just like when Yeshua uh, was on earth and the Syrophoenician woman had come to him for the healing of her daughter. He says, can I take my bread and, you know, cast it to the dogs? And she said to him, uh, true, you know, uh, Yeshua. She said, but the dogs do eat the crumbs that falls from the table. And when he saw that, he was so glad that she held on. And then he went on and, and blessed her because he told her, I am sent but for the lost sheep of Israel. And she certainly wasn't considered the lost sheep of Israel, okay? But when she persevered, he was letting her know, you have the benefits to the kingdom just as well as the people that I'm, I'm trying to gather. So the thing that we're looking at is that as we journey in trying to get our people, we will run into people like, uh, the Syrophoenician woman. We will run into people like the woman at the well, mm-hmm. uh, the Samaritan woman. We will run into people of other nations that are seeking what we have, and we can be specific, specific to them as we can to the original people that they can be a part of the covenant. Mm. Okay. Uh, we have a question that was submitted. And it reads, uh, how do we know what is the correct pronunciation and spelling of the father's name and the son's name? And we kind of talked about this before we came on air a little bit. Mm-hmm. What is somebody's comment? How, how can we know the correct pronunciation? Uh-huh. And the okay. spelling of the father's name and the son's name. Okay. Well, one of the things that we go by, I remember I was uh I think I was a chaplain and a pastor down in uh, uh, Indianapolis, Indiana. And I was in, uh, he was an Afro-American professor. I was trying to think of the university that he was in. Mm-hmm. I think he might have been a part of uh, Indiana University. But anyway, he allowed me to sit in this class, and he said something that I want to share with you. He says, uh, like a lot of people say, well, how do you know if the Bible is true and how can you uh, know what is truth? You know, what is truth? And he said this, he said this, he said, you know, truth may be out there. He said, but in order for you to discover truth, one of the things that we have to do is to get the best source of truth that we we can have. Okay. Now, for you to get the best sort of sort of source of truth, you have to study what you study. You may get it from Shakespeare or some other source if that's all you got. Okay, if that's all you got. And then when we go to the Bible, if that's the best source that we have and we have no other source, he said, then that is truth for us. Okay. Now, if we were not around Mount Sinai or experiencing in the Garden of Eden, we don't know how words were pronounced or spelled. We don't. We just don't know. Sure. Okay, so what is the best source that we have? Okay, the best source we have may be the King James Bible. But then we have to say, where did the King James Bible uh, come from? And we have to trace that down. We may come to the Geneva Bible. We may come to the Septuagint Bible. 
and we keep on going until we get to the original Hebrew Bible, and then we have to look up the words the best that we can, and if we come out with the best that we can in, 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 in the pronunciation of the words, we have to leave it there. But they got different forms of Hebrew. In the Paleo-Hebrew, most of your words all deal with A. They have the A in it. Just like when you deal with the word we call God, they, they call God Yahawashah. They use the A's. And some people call him Yahuwah. Some people may call him Yahweh. Some people may call him El. Some people call him El Elyon. And some people may call him uh, El, Shad El, El Shaddai. All of those are, 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 are pronunciations I haven't heard, and I don't know if anybody else has heard how they actually pronounce it, but with the best of the knowledge that we have, then we have to say that for me, as I have studied, then I use Yahuwah, and I may use Yahweh, because in my study, in my knowledge, it's the best for me. Not saying that I have arrived at exactly how to pronounce it. I'm not saying that, but I'm saying for my understanding, since nobody has a recording of how they spoke. And even when you get to the Hebrew, then the Hebrew is not really telling you how to pronounce the word because in those days when they wrote the script, they did not have vowels in there. There was no vowels. They only had consonants. And when later on, when they start pronouncing the words that did not have vowels, they have what you call vowel pointing. And vowel pointings, they are certain uh, dots and lines that says whether it has an A sound or whether it has a U sound or A-E-I-O-U. Uh, mm -hmm. They have what you call vowel points. But that does not say how it was pronounced. They are telling you that this is uh, 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 these consonants are pronounced with the A sound. This is with a U, and that's with an O. This is with an I, and this may be with a Y. That's because you you know the vowel pointings, but that is the best that you have. So you would have to use that to say how you pronounce it. And if another person pronounced it different from the way I pronounce it, I'm certainly not going to come down on that person because. They're probably using the amount of knowledge that they have, like I'm using mine, and that's the best that they have come up with. Yeah. Now, how to spell it, the spelling, they got a lot of Hebrews, uh, the way, way that they spell it. But then when we take that he that Hebrew and transform it into uh, English, it may come out different for some scholars than it does for others. So they are using the best amount of knowledge they have from the scriptures that they have if they can go back to the original, then they can say, well, we can spell it this way because this is the Hebraic alphabet. And so mm -hmm. this is what we're going by. And then when we take each alphabet of the Hebrew language and transliterate it, or not transliterate it, but translate it into English, then if I see uh, Aleph, it equates to the A. And then if when I take the, the Beth, which is a B, then that equates to the B. And I take all of the letters of the alphabet and do that, and then when I come out with the spelling of it, 
then I can say, well, with the knowledge that I have of Hebrew, and when I equate it with English, this is the best that I can I can spell this word with. So when we take the best of what we got and the information that we have, then this is how we pronounce it, and this is how we spell it with the best that we have that we we have observed. Just like even though I use Yahuwah and uh, Elohim and stuff like that, do you know I'm still studying the names of the the, the uh, 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 of a lot of these uh, yeah. names that we have for God? Just like a lot of time we say, well, we take the word like uh, El Shaddai, mm-hmm. and when we go down uh, uh, Abraham, uh, Abraham in his day and age, he used the name El Shaddai. Mm. And it seemed like that name was lost until we get back to Moses. And and, and the Bible says about Moses uh, that the Elohim, uh, I think, said to Moses, uh, by the name El Shaddai, I have not been known. Mm-hmm. In other words, from Abraham to Moses, I think they kind of lost sight of using the name El Shaddai until Moses came. He said, I have not been known by this name. Not that I didn't have it, but I have not been known by it almost since Abraham. So when they got more knowledge of it, then people say, well, uh, the word El El Shaddai, that means the mountains, because shed, uh, I think, means mountain or something like that. So they mean uh, like the mountains protrude up from the earth. And so when you look at El Shaddai, it means the God of the mountains. Mm -hmm. But when you probe more into it, it, it's not only the God of the mountains, but they say it's the breast, the breasted one, like a female. A female have breath in order to feed her children, so they call him El Shaddai because he is the breasted one that feeds his children, and he's looked at upon, upon that way. But like I said, I'm still studying that name. It's so much in studying just about the name of Elohim himself, of how to pronounce it and how to spell it, that the scholars have not all agreed on. on. Wow. You know, and it just like uh, after I posted a video, how we had spoke about it earlier, how one guy commented because he heard you use Yahuwah and he stated that Yahweh was um, from the Catholics and that it has to do with the Antichrist. Where he gets this information, I do not know. But for me, myself, from my studies, and I'm not saying that I'm right because just like you, I'm still studying. But when I look at the Paleo Hebrew and ancient Hebrew and what some people have studied and said the pronunciation, that's why I have used Yahuwah. Now, if as I continue to study more if i find there is something more that his name is even closer i'm gonna probably try to start using that but i think you know right now we use what best we know as the name of the father and the son you know because uh some people may still you know and it's even still I hate to use it at times, but I still at times use God and Jesus because if I'm talking to someone about scripture in the Bible who may not know the name Yahuwah and Yahusha, I have to talk to them on their terms, on their level to where they understand mm-hmm. and everything. Yeah, that's a good practice. Uh, what I do sometimes in my writing, I uh, 
<clears throat> I might I might start off, you know, letting people understand that uh, why I'm using Yah rather than God. Mm. You know, I just put Y A H rather than God, and the reason why I'm using this is because it comes closer to what I uh, see in the Bible than God, which is so general. Because yeah. when you actually trace God down, uh, it didn't really come from the Bible. It came from some of the Germanic tribes mm. that that accepted the Bible, and they replaced it with their own cultural God until they put God in there rather than Yah. Oh, so okay. I explained that I'm using this because it comes closer to what I have, but if you understand the concept about God, yeah. I'm, we're talking about the same thing, but I'm just putting it in what I know to be the closest to the one that is in the book. Just like uh, Malcolm X says, you know, he says uh, the Jews, they call him Yahweh. The Christians, they call him God. Yeah. And the Arabs call him Allah. Yeah. Okay, now, if Arabs are talking about the same God that I'm talking about, if if they are saying that Allah and uh, that uh, that the Arabs have, and they're saying the Jews have Yahweh and the Christians have God, mm -hmm. if we all talking about the same God, then we all on the same page together. But we just using different languages in order to express Him. Yeah. But now, when I get down into how to serve Him, and you took you telling me about Allah and Yahweh and God, if we are serving Him different then that's where the problem is. We're serving him different, but the name brings us all together. Mm. And if the name that I'm serving him under is not the correct way to serve him, then I might choose not to not only to follow uh, that name because it's not following the practice, so nobody will identify me with that God because they say, well, even though the Allah... And Yahuwah means the same, they ain't following. So for that reason, I, I would say, well, I can't follow Allah. And I can't follow the Yahweh. And I can't follow God because they are not following him the way that they should. But I can use Yah because in the same book that I read, that I'm practicing the same thing that he asked me to practice. Mm -hmm. But but for the most part, you know, uh, there are different names and different spellings for it. Well, Pastor, can you take us to the throne as we get ready to close out this podcast for this week? Okay. Loving Father, we thank you for another adventure in the Scriptures. Thank you that on this Shabbat, O oh, Heavenly Father, we can discuss your word, your way, and what Yeshua taught us and how to deal with the oppression that we are under. Sometimes we can be peaceful and sometimes we can com become combative. But we have to listen to your voice to know when to move and when to speak and when to do the things, Lord, that you would have us to do, whether it's peaceful or whether it's violent, that we may listen to your voice and be able to follow your lead. And so we thank you, Lord, for being able to just come together one more time. Thank you for the blessings that you've given us this week and how you have sustained us and given us the things that we stood in need. We just thank you for just the common blessings of food and water transportation and a house to live in and the heat that thou has given us. You've been such a good Elohim, and we pray as we continue on that you would continue to bless us. Remember my host, remember me, remember each person who listens, and most of all, 
Remember those who want to follow your covenant promises to be a part of your kingdom, that when you do come, we can meet you in peace. Is our prayer in Yeshua's name, and for his dear sake we do pray. Amen. Amen. And amen. Amen. That is our podcast for this week. If you have any questions or comments, please feel free to email us at scienceofthecovenant at gmail.com. O ye seed of Yasharel, his servant, ye children of Yaakov, his chosen ones. He is Yahuwah Eloheinu. His judgments are in all the earth. Be ye mindful always of his covenant, the word which he commanded to a thousand generations. Until next week, shalom.